Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I always love how God seems to providentially work through the lectionary readings, because, of course, we don't have the liberty to just choose what readings will be on a given Sunday, but rather the Book of Common Prayer lays them out for us. And I don't think that there was an accident this morning that we heard Clint uh, mention the importance of stewardship for the kingdom of God on the same Sunday that we have an epistle reading that urges us not to make our bellies our God and to remember that our true citizenship is in heaven and a gospel that tells us that while we should give to Caesar what is Caesar's, we should remember to give our whole selves to God. But they also say that it's a rude dinner guest who talks about religion and politics. So here we go. In this morning's gospel reading, we see the Pharisees attempt to entangle Jesus by asking him questions. They want to give him enough rope to hang himself. And they think that if they ensconce their question in flattery, Jesus will unwittingly spring their trap. Master, we know that thou art true and teaches the way of God in truth. Of course, if they really believe that, they wouldn't be trying to entrap our Lord. And what is the question that they use in their game? Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? The question is what we might call a double bind, because there is seemingly no real answer to it that's satisfactory. If Jesus said, no, it's not lawful to give tribute or pay taxes to Caesar, it would have increased his popularity dramatically with the people, but the Pharisees could have reported him to the authorities for being a revolutionary who was attempting to overthrow the Roman governments, much like various zealot groups that had arisen in that region during that time and stoked rebellion against their occupiers. On the other hand, If Jesus straight up said that it was good and right to pay taxes to Caesar, he would have lost credibility in the eyes of the people. Because surprise, surprise, paying taxes back then was not nearly as popular as it is today. Especially when you were paying those taxes to a foreign power that violently subjected your people and used cruel and coercive tactics to keep people in line. So what seems like an innocent question A philosophical question posed by the Pharisees is actually a masterful snare laid before Jesus, supposedly. And what does Jesus do in reply? Well, he asks someone to hand him a tax coin. Now, interestingly, the fact that Matthew uses the specialized term tax coin instead of the more generic term of denarius like the other gospel authors lends some credibility to the theory that this gospel, the gospel of Matthew, was penned by someone with experience as a tax collector. Further, there's a layer of irony in the question because if we believe Matthew's account of our Lord, then Jesus, who is God, the creator, the one who holds the whole universe together, is standing there asking if anyone else has a coin that he can borrow. Now, the coins at the time were kind of like coins for us today in that they often had images of important national figures on them. 
Now, in the United States, we have a federal law that prohibits living people to be featured on our currency, and a president has to be deceased at least two years before they can be put on our money. And I think this is probably a very prudent rule that we have in place, but it wasn't so in the ancient world. The kind of coin that Jesus was handed would have had an image of Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor at the time. While merely putting someone's face on a coin probably wouldn't have bothered most Jews in Jesus' day, the coin was problematic because it perpetuated a common form of religious worship of the emperor. So the front of the coin, alongside the image, would have had the inscription Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. And on the back, an inscription that read Pontifex Maximus, which is Latin for the greatest priest. These are both pagan titles that solidified the pagan belief that the emperor was a god. So Jesus, in possession of this coin, asks his interlocutors whose image is on the coin, to which they reply that it's Caesar. Jesus responds then in a somewhat cryptic way that has befuddled a number of commentators and interpreters throughout the centuries. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God. Whatever the answer means, we know it was profound enough to silence and marvel his enemies. Now, beginning with the Reformation, Jesus' words here, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's, has been dissected and turned into a systematic and programmatic political theology known as the two kingdoms, which posits that God's rule is divided into two zones, two kingdoms, or God's rule is expressed through two hands— The one, the kingdom of the law, which we might call the state, and the other, the kingdom of grace, which we might call the church. And so to someone like Martin Luther, God rules through both of these somewhat connected but really disjointed means. If you think about the construction of the city of Annapolis, it's very much built on these two kingdoms because we have church circle and state circle, though it's always interesting that state circle is so much bigger than church circle, but that's a whole other sermon. And there's much to commend about this two kingdoms view, but I do think that today's gospel reading probably doesn't bear the weight of a whole theopolitical theology uh, because Jesus isn't really giving us a vivid or detailed description of how church and state should relate. So I think a few points of emphasis in this passage help us to see the point a little bit more clearly. So first, the context of the Pharisees is that they are attempting to entrap Jesus. And I think this is more important than any of the particular issues that get raised because the point of really Matthew 22 to 23 is how Jesus over, outwits his opponents again and again. So the very beginning of Matthew 22, the passage before our gospel reading today, is the parable of the wedding feast, which we read back a couple weeks ago on the 20th Sunday after Trinity when Bishop Chad visited us. And in that story, a man throws a wedding banquet for his son, a king, for a prince. And he sends out messengers to invite all of the guests to the the party. The invitees all make excuses to to these messengers. Some of them even take the messengers, scorn them, and then kill them. So the king sends his army, and he kills the ungrateful guests. 
and then sends more messengers out into the highways and byways around the city to invite random strangers in. The parable looks forward to how Jews and Gentiles responded to our Lord, national Israel rejecting the wedding invitation, while the Gentiles were invited to the wedding feast in their stead. But this parable sets the tone for everything that follows in chapter 22 and chapter 23. First, we have this encounter that we read today between Jesus and the Pharisees on the issue of taxation. Our gospel reading from that passage is followed by an encounter that Jesus had with the Sadducees, who were a rival religious group who didn't believe in a resurrection. And so they try and trip him up on the topic of the resurrection by asking about marriage. If a woman has so many husbands during her life, when she dies, whose wife is she? To which Jesus says, no one, because marriage doesn't exist in heaven. So he foils the Sadducees. And then finally, the Pharisees come back one more time to try and trap Jesus. They ask him to choose what's the greatest law. They want him to pit one law against all the other laws. And of course, Jesus doesn't play the game because he responds with the Bayoun commandment, the summary of the law. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus doesn't just pick one law as more important than the other. He picks the ones that summarize everything else. So again, the Pharisees lose. So then Jesus flips the tables on them. And he asks, whose son is the Messiah? And the Pharisees respond, like good Jews would, the Messiah is the son of David. And Jesus wants to get to the point that the Messiah is actually the son of God. So he says, if the Messiah is the son of David, why does David call him Lord in the Psalms? And so at that juncture, we know Jesus has completely fooled the Pharisees when they thought they were the ones who were going to fool him. They have been outmatched because they were trying to outsmart wisdom himself. So these attempts to trick Jesus cast the Pharisees as the invited wedding guests who refuse the invitation and kill the messengers because that's what they're trying to do to our Lord. In light of all this, then, what does Jesus' cryptic exhortation to the Pharisees mean today in our reading, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and God the things that are God's? As I've mentioned, I don't think that this text is where we should go to parse out the entirety of the relationship between church and state. It's not a nuance or a blueprint for all the nuances of what Christian political engagement should look like. Passages like Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 are better texts because they're clearer on these topics. I think what Jesus means to tell the Pharisees that he encounters today is that since you have the coin, you should pay the tax. And then stop stop being so underhanded. Because you may owe Caesar the tax, but you owe God all of your heart and your soul and your mind. Now, the Christian tradition isn't prescriptive insofar as we are mandated to have a particular kind of political organization. We have freedom in how we organize the state. There are good Christians in countries that are monarchies, republics, democracies, and other forms of government. However, social organization is necessary, and it is important, but we always have to remember that it's accidental and variable. 
So the extension of the gospel reading is the principle that if a Christian engages with Caesar, whoever Caesar is or whatever Caesar looks like, by traveling on his roads, by relying on his protection, by benefiting from his educational institutions or whatever else, that we have to pay our due. But even though Jesus was okay with paying taxes, he resists confusing what is temporary, a particular government, with what is eternal, our relationship with God. Be a good citizen, he's saying, but your citizenship isn't what defines you in an essential way. Your citizenship is not the organizing principle of your life. The Christian faith asks much of us. It addresses us as embodied and contextualized beings. We see that in that great commandment to serve God with all our heart and soul and mind and love our neighbors as ourselves. We don't always get to choose who our neighbors are, rarely. At the same time, our faith teaches us that what is temporal is subordinate in importance to what is eternal. We don't make what's temporal an end to itself. Like St. Paul urges us in our epistle, we don't serve the belly, our passions, and our appetites, which apply much more than to just our diets. Rather, Paul urges us to look for our Lord, who transfigures this vile body into a glorious body like his. So our gospel reading confronts us with an exhortation to avoid idolatry. Whatever our political engagement looks like, and it can look differently for different people, it's never an end to itself. Rather, we have a higher calling. And our identity is certainly informed by our country, our political persuasions, and other related issues. These are not what is essential about us. Every facet of our identity, every part of who we are, has to bow before the cross of Christ and be ultimately dedicated in service to our Lord. It's too easy for us to get caught up in the daily hassle of a 24-7 news cycle that constructs reality in a certain way and pushes us to view everything through that particular lens. But today's reading is a challenge for us. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Vote in an informed manner. Support causes that matter to you and lead to an increasing of human flourishing and are compatible with the gospel. Pray for the world. Pray for the state like we do in morning and evening prayer. But above all, do not forget that your body, your heart, and your soul don't belong to a particular political party or candidate. They belong to our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's him that we are to imitate. And his life requires us to transcend contemporary 21st century partisan political divisions in service of his gospel. Our collect for today reminds us that he is our refuge. He is our strength. He is the author of all goodness. And God certainly can use our political efforts. Now, whether that's because they're always good or because he's faithful in spite of ourselves remains somewhat of a question sometimes. But he doesn't need those efforts either because we don't have to wring our hands or we don't have to imagine God as wringing his hands in heaven wondering if we're going to make the right choice or not. We don't look to any particular politician or political party as a refuge, as a strength, 
as a source of our goodness. Rather, we remember that ultimately, it doesn't matter who's in Washington or Annapolis or in any seat of power because God is in control and he's not unseated when things don't go our way. He hears the prayers of his church and he'll be faithful to place us where we need, where we get what we need. We may not always be happy with that. It's not always the most fun place to be. But if we obey him, if we're faithful to his calling, if we keep our lives aimed at the real goal, we will grow in holiness. And when we grow in holiness, there is where we find our true happiness. So render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give your whole self, all of who you are, to God. Because politicians will fail you, but God will always, always, always be faithful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.